0: What happens is that leaders often don't want to change. What I really don't like to see is leaders making bad decisions and then their employees suffering and their community suffering and the economy suffering. So I'm really passionate about helping leaders make better decisions as we move into the future of work because my expertise is in decision-making, looking at the future and how we make decisions when the situation changes. You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the
1: experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by Allwork.space. Are you ready? Greetings and welcome to the Future of Work podcast. Um, Today, I'm quite excited about our guest. As the CEO of uh, Future of Work Consultancy Disaster Avoidance Experts, Dr. Gleep helps executives drive collaboration, innovation, and retention in hybrid work. His expertise comes from over 20 years of consulting for Fortune 500 companies, from Aflac to Xerox, and over 15 years in academia as a behavioral scientist at UNC Chapel Hill and Ohio State. His cutting edge thought leadership has been featured in over 50, 650 articles in prominent venues such as the Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and USA Today. He is also a best selling author of seven books, including Leading Hybrid Remote Teams, a manual on benchmarking the best practices in a competitive industry. Dr. Kleb, thank you very much for joining us today on the Future of Work podcast.
0: I appreciate you inviting me, Frank.
1: No, it's my pleasure. I know we had a little chat uh, beforehand, and I'm very excited for some of the thoughts that I know you can share that are, uh, will be quite material to our audience. Um, but tell me, before we, we start, what's kept you, after all these years consulting, articles, books, everything that you've done, so vitally interested in the future of work? What What keeps you going?
0: What keeps me going is that it's changing and what happens is that leaders often don't want to change they're very comfortable with where you they are and so what i really don't like to see is leaders making bad decisions and then their employees suffering and their community suffering and the economy suffering so i'm really passionate about helping leaders make better decisions as we move into the future of work because it's always changing. Right now, we're having hybrid and remote work. Who knows in five years, maybe we'll have virtual you know reality work. And the, I, I will be at the cutting edge of that because my expertise is in decision making, looking at the future and how we make decisions when the situation changes. So that's what I'm passionate about.
1: well, you know it it's funny because since about two thousand and seventeen or early eighteen, we've been forecasting the virtual reality office instead of just the virtual office uh, and have some uh, quite a number of ideas on how that can physically function uh, in, in the future of work, and, uh, not necessarily with the meta view, but with our own own perspective. So that's that's a whole nother topic we can get into. But you said something interesting. Um, helping executives to not make bad decisions. How do you do that? what what kind of bad decisions are they making related to hybrid and remote work that you see and and how how do you turn that around as a, a, a intellectual force uh publishing and saying things but how do you do it practically
0: hmm. so the first thing to realize is why people in general make decisions executives are people and people make bad decisions especially in new situations so just want to realize that first Why do people make bad decisions in new situations especially? And so what we have as people is unfortunately a set of dangerous judgment errors in our mind called cognitive biases. So these cognitive biases, they're just part of our wiring. It's how our brain is structured. And that's because it comes from an evolutionary background, we weren't wired for the modern environment, you know, being in Zoom's sc- little screens connecting to each other. We were wired for the Savannah environment when we lived in a small tribe of 50 to 150 people. And that's what we're wired for. And so as a result, we make a number of bad judgment errors in the modern world. One of the biggest ones that causes leaders to just make decisions about the future of work in all such sorts of situations including hybrid and remote work, is called status quo bias. So status quo bias is where we have a predisposition toward what we see as the status quo, regardless of whether it's good for us or our company or our team. We have a predisposition toward what we're comfortable with, what we like. In the Savannah environment, that was a good thing because if the situation changed in the Savannah environment, that was likely a bad thing. We needed to have an intuition to go back to the status quo and to not rock the boat. But in the modern environment, things change pretty quickly, whether it's a pandemic coming out or the fiscal crisis, inflation, supply chain issues, or of course, hybrid and remote work. The situation changes. We need to change with it, but the status quo bias really prevents us from making the changes that we need to do. Well, so that's yes, yeah. one. You know
1: the your comment on the status quo virus that brings to mind uh, an old uh, what do they say the seven most deadly words in business because that's the way we've always done it
0: mm-hmm.
1: that 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 really it has historically uh, been the difference between um, companies that were comfortable and disruptors mm-hmm. uh, yeah. overall, so I, I think that that's not just um at a management level or an executive level, but it's an entire company's level culturally. Uh, and and one, of, one of my favorites, too, comes, come, comes from a old World War II general that says, you know, once you see the eyes of the enemy, all strategy changes. So if you look at your status quo structure that you're talking about, the way we've always done it, but then when you look into the future whether you see that as an enemy or a, a, an ally your strategy does have to change it absolutely it Does, does. Um, uh, uh, when you you mentioned proximity bias um i think we all uh, understand your your example uh, of, of of the tribe and the savannah and the importance of the relationships within it mm-hmm. but how do you relate that to a global or a multinational company today Um, and i'll use our own company as an example Uh, i don't see people that i work with every day but once a year or every other year they're in a a whole nother company a whole country and a whole nother continent sometimes Mm -hmm. it'll be a year or two years between the times that we're personally together but we have to get stuff done every day so how do you overcome proximity bias when you have a global organization or a a multinational organization where you can't have the proximity no matter what?
0: Hmm. Well, what I definitely see, and a number of my clients are Fortune 500 companies that are global companies, and there is certainly a desire among managers, among leaders, to have people go back to the office because that's what they're comfortable with. So if we think about that status quo bias, It's about a feeling of comfort, what we feel good about. It's the way we've always done it, right? Like you said yourself. And the fact that you've always done it that way doesn't mean that you should keep doing it that way. But many leaders, they feel very uncomfortable leading in a remote setting, leading in a hybrid setting. So they want everyone to go back to the office because they know how to lead in that way. So in 2019, the, let's say, Fortune 200 company, so one of the high-tech manufacturing one that's a client of mine. In January 2019, in, or January 2020, in January 2019, it, the leaders knew how to lead. Everyone was certainly distributed. You know, some people in San Francisco, some people in Singapore, some people in Dublin. But they knew where everyone was leading. They knew how everyone was leading. But they don't know how to lead in a remote setting. And so leaders are pretty uncomfortable with that. And that's the reason why they're driving people to the office. And what they need to realize is that in order to have a competitive advantage for the future, they can't see hybrid and remote work as a loss. That's what they're saying it is, as a loss, as a problem to solve. Instead, they need to see it as a disruption. And therefore, they need to take advantage of this opportunity to disrupt the status quo, because in the war for talent, and talent is unquestionably the thing that will determine the future of any company. That is where the war is being fought. Yes, absolutely. That's right. So in the war for talent, if you don't offer flexibility, you have to offer much higher salaries, and that's a bad situation for you. You're going to lose the war for talent if you have to pay much more for the same quality of talent. And so leaders could see the situation as a disruption and who take advantage of this opportunity to actually learn how to lead in a hybrid and remote setting. And I talk about that in my book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, how to lead in a hybrid and remote setting. Those are the leaders who will succeed. Whether they are the leaders of a Fortune 500 multinational company or the leaders of a 10-people company, or a 200 people company, or a 1,000 people company, small business, middle market, large companies, it doesn't matter. You need to gain the skills of being a hybrid leader. And if you don't, you're going to not survive and thrive in the world of tomorrow.
1: Well, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. The difference, you're using a variety of terms. Uh, the ones you're using most commonly uh, are hybrid and remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are terms that most people are familiar with. But another term that you used was distributed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're seeing, and I think this maybe has a historical perspective, um, you've heard the, the uh, uh, saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Mm-hmm. We all heard that since we were little kids. That really is saying there's safety in distribution. There's safety in having things dis, 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 structured for, for distribution. You've heard of distributed supply chain networks. You've heard of um, uh, military strategies that have to do with distributing the troops into different formations, etc. So all these things, the concept of working with distributed groups is not new. It's mm-hmm. thousands of years old. How do we get the executives that you're talking about today, small, medium and large, 10 to 10,000 or 10 to 100,000 for that matter, how do we get them to think in the comfort zone that remote work is really not much different than distributed work? One difference might only be that it's the difference between um, an individual remote worker uh, and a group used in distributed work. Is there any context there that you can bring forth?
0: What I think is really important for leaders to realize is that they really should not centralize decision-making. So we're talking about distribution, right? I like to talk about decentralization. So when you think about decentralizing power, the people who should be making decisions about how the workers should work, shouldn't be the CEO at the top Saying, Come in every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, right? That is an approach some companies are taking, where Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are days in the office. But do the CEOs really know what is going to be best for each specific individual team? Of course not. Different teams can function best in different contexts, whether they spend their all of their time working in a remote setting whether they spend their time you know, all the time in the office or they spend one day in the office or two or three days in the office, what you really need to do is push down the decision-making to the lowest possible level. So the level of each individual team. So have the team work with each individual team leader so the team leader works with their team of the rank and file team, six six to eight people, and they should make the decision for what works best for them, because they know their needs. And so that's how I strongly encourage leaders to make decisions, to push down power, to decentralize, because they are not the ones who know what is best for each individual team.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, in in our company, uh, we give everybody that we hire, hopefully we're winning that talent war, but everybody that we hire, we give them a a little introductory presentation and and um uh, i'm usually part of that presentation and i explain to everybody from the entry-level intern on up to a senior person that the one thing that we will fire somebody for is not making their own decisions hmm. very important not just at the team level in my opinion but at the individual level that everyone in a company if it's going to progress aggressively successfully competitively that everybody has to be a decision maker for their own responsibilities they have to be their own decision maker so I, I i think pressing it down as you're saying we've sort of done that in the extreme but everybody pressing down uh is is a very good thing and one thing that kind of is uh, uh, a a uh, example of that in some respects, when we talk about distributed work, remote work, et cetera, um, is there's, I think the Czech Republic just the other day made the decision uh, to put inside of its uh, human resources legal structure um, uh, for all companies that um, remote work was now a right. It wasn't a privilege. Hmm. Ireland has done the same. I think Sweden has done that now. So several countries have made remote working in your position a right now it's loosely defined and it's it's hard to see how that will, will come to play but that's a very interesting issue when you look at um the the structure of government insisting that this is is something that's as important as other employment rights that might have to do with sex or race or age or things of that nature
0: um yeah, that's interesting. It's true. I just have an article published in Forbes that talks about specifically disabled people. And of course, if you think about disabled people, they are definitely more enabled to buy remote work. So if you look at, for example, the rate of employment of disabled people, it went down as for non-disabled people during early in the pandemic. But by now, the rate of employment for non-disabled people, so people without disabilities, is just 1.1% below what it was before the pandemic. So it recovered mostly, not fully. For people who are disabled, the rate of employment is 3.5% higher. Yes. Higher than before the pandemic because of remote work. And so due to remote work, they're able to work much more. And consider the fact that many more people became disabled due to long COVID. So mm-hmm. with issues like fatigue and brain fog, we know that about 1.7 million more Americans became disabled since the start of the pandemic. And about 900 of the 900,000 are able to still work. And again, a lot of this is due to remote work. So looking at ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, In many cases, it can be argued that people with disabilities have the right to the accommodation of remote work. So there is a way in which this legally applies in the United States. I don't think it will be applied in terms of the government policy more broadly. But it already applies to disabled people.
1: well, that's that's a good start and, and 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 a good good place to begin. I think from the studies that I've read that there's a, another correlative issue there is that it wasn't just that the employment rate of employment for this particular group went up, but also the compensation levels within the rate of employment went up.. Sure. And that I think is equally important because of the fact that the 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 recognition that one disability doesn't limit or create another, uh, mm-hmm. so it's a, a very interesting thing as as we as we look forward. Um, kind of going back to the proximity bias a little bit. Um, how ingrained do you think that really is today? I mean, we've we've gone through a lot of change. We've gone through a lot of I mean, every executive of every company in the world, probably today, has had to deal with some element of that and figure out their own path towards, if not erasing it, at least working around it. Uh, do you think that our habit of distributed work and remote work has lasted long enough and become ingrained enough that proximity bias will just go through and evaporate through a natural structure or do you think that it's something that we we're really going to have to pound on the table about and say no you've got to retrain everybody don't you think it's almost a natural phenomenon at this point
0: what i've seen is that we're really only at the beginning of the fight against proximity bias there are lots and lots of leaders who don't acknowledge it as an issue they want everyone back in the office. I mean, think about Tesla and Elon Musk or Twitter and SpaceX now, or Goldman Sachs or Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan, driving all of their employees to the office. They don't care about proximity bias. They want everyone back in the office. So they're not even considering. There are other leaders who are saying, well, let's do three days in the office for, more, for people. And they're not really looking at proximity bias as an issue. They're not considering it. We know from a Society of Human Resources survey, from Society for Human Resource Management survey, that there are many managers who are very open saying that, hey, yes, I have proximity bias. I care about people who are coming into the office more than I care about who don't. And I'm more likely to rate them more highly and to give them projects and promotions and they are not trying to fight against it. They just acknowledge it as an issue, and they're saying, well, this is just the way it is. So I think we are in proximity bias where we were with racism in the 1950s or with gender, LGBTQ issues in the 1970s. Proximity bias is an equity issue, just like other diversity, equity, inclusion issues are equity issues. People who are remote, face discrimination. This is just the reality, but there's no question. And if we don't actively fight against it, it's just like letting discrimination, racist discrimination, anti-Semitic discrimination, gender-based discrimination, LGBTQ-based discrimination, religious discrimination, political discrimination, religious, all sort of cultural, ethnic run rampant. So if we don't fight against it, It's just like not including it in GI, but proximity bias needs to be a part of the conversation within diversity, equity, and inclusion.
1: Well, I I would agree with with that. Uh, Also, I'll I'll bring up the old uh, quote of absence makes the heart grow fonder, Uh, that sometimes you can be too close (laughs) every day and then take people for granted, and when you have a little distance you take the, you gain the perspective or maybe this is where it needs to go you gain the perspective of a person's true worth um I know if, if I see someone every day then we talk about the same things we do the same things and there's not much exciting but when I see somebody who's been working on a project and I'm I meet with them every week or every other week they always have something to bring that's new that's exciting that they they put together so one of the things that, that we've learned is that you, your absence or your proximity sometimes is a, a reduction in, in capability uh, overall. Uh, uh, so we, I, personally, I think we shy from it. We we, we like having people being independent. Uh, and I think I come from an industry in the flexible workplace sector and co-working business centers, et cetera. Where independent entrepreneurs uh, um, thrive, uh, and where teams thrive through their independence from the the, the corporate uh, masters that are overseeing everything every day. Um, hmm. I also, I think read a... maybe
0: less usual. So most people have a like you heard from the survey. Managers definitely have a preference for people they see every day. And remember, it's not only business, a lot of it is social. It's talk conversations over the water cooler, it's connections, it's relationship building. So people like those they see more frequently on that. Yeah, I,
1: I see that and I, I can agree with that. In fact, I, I was looking at another survey that was showing the days of the for companies that uh, gave employees the option. Hey, work at home or work in the office, you figure it out as a team. Exactly what you were saying, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Companies that were doing that, the recent survey I looked at uh, was showing that the greatest number of people show up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and they spend literally a full day in the office to exactly do what you're talking about, to work with colleagues, to stay social, et cetera, but the other days are doing quiet or deep work away from the office on the great majority of the time so on a voluntary basis if you were to let the culture run the way it likes to run without any management it seems that the self-organizing structure says a little bit on monday some on friday a little bit more on thursday a lot tuesday and wednesday Um, this is when people just naturally came into the office and the supposition was well they came into the office on those days because more people were in the office of those days. They came specifically for that interaction. So maybe as workers, not just as executives, we have our own proximity bias or need for social interaction that causes us to have to or want to be in the office, not just 100% remote.
0: Now, I think with my clients, we've definitely found we need to help people coordinate. So we do things like on certain days, like a Thursday lunch or a Tuesday cookies and afternoon event or something like that. So where people actually get a chance to get together at a certain specific time. So some people, for example, they come in on Tuesday in the morning and then they stay for the afternoon cookies and then they leave early to beat the rush hour or they come in for the lunch on Thursday, so come in late to be the morning rush hour and stay until the evening to be the evening rush hour. So I, my, what my clients find is that it's very valuable to actually help people coordinate through various social activities and help them know when together, together, when other people will be there to both socialize and collaborate.
1: Well, you know, I think that's right. and. Your comment about before the rush hour, after the rush hour. um, I have a total solution for Jamie Dimon. Um, He wants to get everybody back in the office. Uh, Just pay them enough that they can all afford a nice apartment in Manhattan. So they don't have to commute. it. It seems to me from all of what we've seen, no one really minds being in the office. People oftentimes much prefer that. But nobody likes to get on a dirty train and ride for an hour to get there. Sure. And it's the commute that kills the office, mm-hmm. um, not the office itself, in, in my experience and from, from what we've seen. So, how do you create a culture that's sustainable? I mean, everything has to evolve, of course, but that, that evolves at a pace of comfort rather than disruption. Um, For a company or uh, an organization to blend these things together, remote work, distributed work, that darn commute, being in the office, socialization, all these things that we're hitting on, is there a single solution or a path that you can see that would bring these elements together into a future of work formula?
0: So I talk about it in my book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, specifically this formula. But let's start with the beginning, the team led model. So you really like there was a recent Gallup survey, which showed that if you let teams make the decision about when and how they work in the office, people are much more productive than if you let the CEO make the decision, for example even more productive than if you let individuals themselves make the decision. So people are more productive. They're also more engaged, so they feel more engaged. That's the best mechanism for actually helping people be engaged and productive. So you have a team-led model, meaning the team in collaboration together, of course, led by the team lead, makes the decision for what works best for each team. And that might mean being fully remote. Although most teams for my clients don't make that decision. They usually have a default of coming in once a week or something like that. So you make the decision, again, pushing it down, team-led model. And then you figure out how do you use your time most effectively in in working from home and working from the office. Now, people need to be trained. They're not used to figuring out what to do at home, what to do in the office. And especially since your time in the office is become going to become much more valuable because you're spending less of it. So you need to prepare for it much more. So you need to train people on how to work effectively in that situa- situation, in that setting. Yeah. Then you need to do things that will help people collaborate effectively while they're working remotely. So most of their tasks that they're doing remotely are going to be doing... Individual deep focused tasks, which are way more productive than remotely. but there are plenty of things that you can do collaboratively in remote settings if you know how to do them well. For example, one of the things I help teams with facilitate is called virtual co-working, where everyone gets together on a video conference call once a day for about an hour. and what they do is everyone dials into a video conference call and they all work on their individual tasks. So it's not for collaborative work, but it's you turn off your microphone, you leave your speakers on, your video is optional, and then you just work on your individual tasks for about an hour. Now, if you have a question, you can turn your microphone on and ask the question, and other team members can turn their microphones on and answer it. Mm -hmm. If you have a problem, you can problem solve. If you have an idea, you can brainstorm. And that's very, very helpful for team bonding, for team belonging, for that culture building, right? So that's the culture building component, especially helpful for onboarding junior team members, getting them on the job training, which is essentially about answering questions synchronously when they have them.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: that is one out of a number of techniques that I talk about in my book, Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams for that formula. For how you manage teams effectively in hybrid remote settings.
1: Well, you know, I I I think there's a that's a tried and true process in many respects. I know uh, when uh, eons ago, when I went to college, centuries and centuries ago, um, uh, we all had study buddies. We'd go to the library together, and if we were in the same class or something, we would a study together most of the time we weren't interacting we were just doing our own studies but when a problem came up you'd say hey what, what do you think's the answer here so the concept of that reimagined into the work environment i think is tremendous but taking a step further and, and we, we we've talked about remote work and you've said several times work at home work at home work at home um And we've talked about working the office, the office, the office, there's another middle ground that that we see. And remember, I come from the the co-working and serviced office business center world um, is work near home with your team or part of your team in close proximity to get rid of that commute. Maybe you all live in the same region, neighborhood, whatever. There's a, a close central spot for you to get that seems to be an, another addition to the hybrid environment of not purely from home or purely from the office, but in a third place or in an organized um, work environment that's professional, that has resources, everything from refreshments, the meeting rooms, AV support, et cetera, so that you can be uh, even more productive. Are you seeing companies migrate that direction? Or is it still home office, home office?
0: Yeah, what I have my clients do is make sure they sponsor their team members when they're working from home for their home office. And if their team members prefer, instead of a home office, if they prefer to have payments for a co-working space, that's something that they do as well. So it's something about, you know, if it's like $100 a month, right? then then the company can pay for that or the company can pay for setting you up with a nice home office, whatever you prefer. It's very important for different people. I mean, some of them don't have a good home office, you know, maybe they have kids, maybe they have roommates or something like that. And so it's important for them to have that option. And some people just don't like working from home. They really need a separation between home and office. And so they like to go to a co-working space. So it's important for the employer to fund them. And it's a really worthwhile use of resources because your team members are going to be more productive. They're gonna have better well-being, They're gonna have less stress. They're gonna be happier if they have the well-supplied home office or if they have a well-supplied co-working space, whatever works best for them.
1: No, I I, I agree with that. I have a well-supplied home office, but I also uh, go into my co-working office on a regular basis more than to a corporate headquarters um I, I find that the the small team meeting or group meeting usually for a single purpose uh to accomplish a specific task is uh, the most effective um uh, for me uh that that's what i find um well you know we've covered a lot of ground here just a ton of stuff uh, topics wise uh and i'm, I'm very grateful uh, to you for for sharing your thoughts with us because i know you've not only done the research, but you've been out in the field, sharing and and learning on an ongoing and continuing basis from a huge cross section of customers. Uh, so I really, uh, Glebra, I really appreciate your time today, and um, uh, hope that we can reimagine cities, reimagine virtual uh, uh, offices, uh, virtual reality offices, uh, the way to get rid of commutes, uh, all the all the things that we know are necessary to. Re-establish the future of work uh, and uh, hope to be able to do
0: some of that together again sometime thank you very much frank i appreciate you inviting me take care bye-bye if it's impacting the future
1: of work it's in the future of work podcast by allwork.space are you ready